Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this morning, as we always do. We are going to be talking about probably the climax of John's Gospel. And therefore, we ask that you help us to open our minds and our hearts to hear what you want us to hear for each of us as individuals. Help us really then to zero in on those things that pertain to us. Give us the strength and the courage then to set aside any preconceived notions and to really understand the essence of John's Gospel. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Well, it feels good to be back in this room, yeah? But don't get too comfortable, because next week it's going to be in that room. Because there's the uh, children's retreat uh, going to be uh, in this room here, okay? So next week we'll be in the room next door. All right. <laughs> Excuse me. If I sound a little raspy, it's because I've got a little bit of cold. Uh, into each light, you know, some rain must fall. All right. Today we're going to be talking about probably the most important part of John's Gospel. The hour. As you know, uh, in this Gospel, John has referred to, or rather Jesus has referred to, uh, his hour. Remember back at the marriage feast of Cana when the mother asks him to do something about the shortage of wine? He said, my hour has not come yet. And a few other places he's talked about the hour. Well, now we are in that point of the story where this is the hour, the passion and death of Christ. Uh, a few things before we get into that. Um, I would like to read from the Old Testament because, as you know, John the Evangelist, the writer, or his followers, have kind of emphasized the Jews. Well, we got to be careful when we read that because obviously it wasn't all the Jewish people. It was the Jewish leaders that we are talking about. And of course, unfortunately, because of the lack of education, uh, the little people, so to speak, those uneducated, the, the majority of people followed the leaders because they were in control in more ways than one. And it was felt that they knew better than everyone else, and therefore um, they were looked up to and followed without question. So when the word the Jews is used in this gospel, we've got to think about the Jewish authorities, primarily the temple rulers, the high priests, and those who were in control, primarily the Pharisees, all right, because they were the controlling party. In the Sanhedrin, which was, say, 
comparable to our Congress, uh, where you had several parties within all these representatives. At, in the Sanhedrin at the time of Jesus, there were six or seven political parties. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the primary ones. But then you had the Essenes and the uh, Endumeans, the Iscariots, and a few others, okay? Uh, rather minor parties, uh, but nevertheless they were there. But it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were the controlling party. So when John talks about um, the Jews, he's really referring to those people who should have known better. All right. Now, to give you a little background, I want to read from Isaiah uh, chapter 52 and 53. I'm not going to read a lot of it. But it talks about what the Messiah is going to be like and what he's going to experience. And if the Jewish people at the time of Christ if the Pharisees and the Sadducees had really been interested in following the prophecies of their own people, they would have known that this man was the Messiah. But because they had their own agenda and their own likes and dislikes, and primarily their job and their high position and authority, etc., etc., they didn't want to lose that. So they ignored all of history. And as we've known for centuries, history has a way of repeating itself. And we study history to try to prevent that repeating, and yet, unfortunately, it continues. So, from Isaiah chapter 52, I'm going to read this and Think about it in the terms of their speaking about the Messiah. Okay? It says, See my servant, and this is God speaking through the prophet, and he's talking about the servant that he is going to be sending to accomplish all of these things to bring the people back into the fold. All right? says, see, my servant shall prosper. He shall be raised high and greatly exalted. Raised high, and of course Christ was raised up high on the cross. Even as many were amazed at him, so marred was his look beyond that of man, and his appearance beyond that of mortals. Now, it doesn't mean that he was so handsome and glorious. It means that he was marked and spit upon and, you know, crowned with thorns and so forth and so on. So shall he, <clears throat> so shall he uh, startle many nations. Because of him kings shall stand speechless. For those who have not been told shall see, and those who have not heard shall ponder it. You'll hear this at the, uh, the liturgy on Good Friday. Who would believe what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
He grew up like a sapling before him, like a shoot before the parched earth. There was in him no stately bearing to make us look at him. In other words, Christ grew up as just any other person and was thought of as just as any other person. No appearance that would attract us to him. He was spurned and avoided by men. A man of suffering, accustomed to infirmity. One of those from whom men hide their faces, spurned, and we held him in no esteem. Yet it was our infirmities that he bore, our sufferings that he endured. And while we thought of him as stricken, as one smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our offenses, crushed for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that makes us whole, and by his stripes we were healed. We had all gone astray like sheep, each following his own ways. But the Lord laid upon him the guilt of us all. And though he was harshly treated, he submitted and opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, or a sheep before the shears, he was silent and opened not his mouth. We'll see some of that later in chapter 18 and 19. Oppressed and condemned, he was taken away. And who would have thought any more of his destiny? When he was cut off from the land of the living and smitten for the sin of his people, a grave was assigned him among the wicked and a burial place with evildoers. Though he had done no wrong, nor spoken any falsehood, but the Lord was pleased to crush him in infirmity. I won't go on if you want to read more, of course, you can do that. But we'll come back and read another portion a little later. (coughs) So you can see in there a prophecy written four, no, five hundred years before Christ. And the people studied the prophets. And yet, when God himself, in the form of Christ, stood in front of him, them, he was ignored. And they didn't go back to their own writings, their own history. So they have no excuse. Now, again, I'm not putting down the Jewish people because most of them followed the leaders because they had no choice. All right. So let's get into chapter 18 here. I'm going to read part of it and then explain a little of it as we go along. When he had said this, and of course this goes back to chapter 14, let's get up and go, all right, from the Last Supper. Jesus went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. Now the Kidron Valley, the temple of Jerusalem, was built on the edge of a plateau, you might say. And to go from there, virtually anywhere else, you had to go kind of downward. All right. So 
the Kidron Valley is to the east of the city of Jerusalem. And you go down a little bit and then you come back up a little bit on a plateau where the Garden of Gethsemane is. Now, it is not a garden as we think of a garden. It was more of an orchard. And it is still there. And some of the olive trees that are there are proven to be uh, not only centuries old, but millennia old. Uh, two and more thousand years old. Okay. Across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, into which he and his disciples entered. Judas, his betrayer, also knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas got a band of soldiers and guards from the chief priests and Pharisees and went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Knowing that this poor man, Jesus, and his poor that band of followers uh, had no way to combat all of this. They seemed to feel it was necessary. Jesus, knowing everything that was going to happen to him, went out and said to them, Whom are you looking for? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. So he said to them, I am. Jesus, his betrayer, was with him. And when he said to them, I am, they turned away and fell to the ground. Well, that is, uh, you got to take that with a little grain of salt, you know. They may have been aghast uh, because he used the great sacred words, I am, which translate back into uh, Aramaic or Hebrew, Yahweh, okay, which we've often heard as being the same word uh, that they used for God. But it was so sacred in those days that they wouldn't actually voice it. And in today's strict Orthodox Jews, even today, will not use the word Yahweh or in English God. Okay? They will make some uh, other arrangement, of, and that is, of course, how the word Lord got into use, okay? to avoid using the word Yahweh or God. Okay? So he said again to them, whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Now, of course, this is the Roman people, the Roman soldiers that are doing this. So they wouldn't have been interested. They wouldn't have any knowledge of what Yahweh or I am really meant. And they wouldn't have cared. Jesus told you, uh, answered, I told you that I am. So if you are looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill what he had said. Remember in chapter 17 when Jesus was praying to the Father for the benefit of the apostles at the Last Supper. He asked for their protection, that God would protect them and not allow them to be harmed. And so this kind of fulfills uh, that uh, prayer request. Then Simon Peter, who had his sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his right ear. The high priest's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its scabbard. Shall I not drink the cup 
that your father gave me. In other words, Jesus is showing right here that he is in control. We should not think of him as a victim, but rather as the victor. He is in control all the way through this. And he has told us over and over throughout this gospel that he gives his life voluntarily to fulfill God's plan of salvation and to fulfill God's request, his particular role in God's plan of salvation. And you'll see more of this as we go on. So the band of soldiers, the tribune, and the Jewish guards seized Jesus, bound him, and brought him to Annas first. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had counseled the Jews that it was better that one man should die rather than the people. Remember back in chapter 11, he actually says that. Uh, and that, in a way, is a prophecy uh, without him even knowing it. It is better for one man to die than for all of the people. And, of course, that's what Christ is actually doing. He is dying because, and, of course, they don't realize that, and they wouldn't understand it anyways. (coughs) (coughs) Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Now, the other disciple, and, of course, this is probably John, who again would not use his own name in this writing, was known to the high priest, and he entered the courtyard of the high priest with Jesus. But Peter stood at the gate outside, so that the other disciple, the acquaintance of the high priest, went out and spoke to the gatekeeper and brought Peter in. Then the maid, who was the gatekeeper, who was the gatekeeper, said to Peter, You are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter says, I am not. Now the slaves and the guards were standing around the charcoal fire that they made because it was cold and were warming themselves. Most people think of Israel as always being warm. This year they had snow and quite a bit of it. Uh, I have a grandson that lives and teaches there. Okay. Um, and they, so it does get very cold there. Peter was also standing there keeping warm. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I have spoken publicly to the world. I have always taught in a synagogue or in the temple area where all the Jews gather, and in secret I have said nothing. Why ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the temple guards standing there struck Jesus and said, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus said to him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But, If I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas 
to the high, priest, the high priest. Annas was the father of, Ca- of Caiaphas. Uh, the high priest role at this time was sort of handed down from family. In fact, uh, Caiaphas had four brothers who also, over a period of time, became high priests because they were limited, I think, to four years, four or five years, I forget which, okay? And so it kind of um, went in the family, you might say. But Annas, the older man, had a great deal of authority, even though he was no longer the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing there keeping warm, and they said to him, You are not one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, a relative of the one whose, uh, whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Didn't I see you in the garden with him? Again, Peter denied it, and immediately the cock crowed. Of course, fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus made uh, back in chapter 17, I believe it is. Now, the trial before Pilate. This is something that we have to kind of look at in a little bit different way. For one thing, Jesus goes to Pilate as a bound uh, prisoner. Okay? Pilate is sort of a wishy-washy type of person. Powerful and strong in minor things, but when it comes to important things, he was weak. And he looks at Jesus in a way that perhaps he should have looked at him. But in the end, he caves in to the Jewish authorities. All right. But Jesus is always in control. As I said, he goes to Pilate as a bound prisoner, but he comes out king of the Jews. And this is shown in the uh, wording that is used here. And between uh, this point here, uh, chapter 18, verse 28 through 19... Chapter 19, verse 13, I believe it is. It is an in and out, in and out, in and out type of uh, story. But when it's in and out, and I mean inside and then outside, then inside and so forth and so on, uh, each time you will see a change in the attitude of Christ and also you'll see the diminishing of the confidence in Pilate. When they had brought Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, uh, that was like the the city hall, you might say, it was morning, and they themselves did not enter the Praetorium in order not to be defiled so that they could eat the Passover. Here they're about ready to condemn a man who is God himself in the form of Jesus, 
but they're more concerned about uh, a Jewish law that says you can't enter the home of a uh, Roman or a Gentile because that makes you defiled then and you cannot eat the Passover. whoop de doo Okay. <clears throat> so, because he could not go into there, so Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not a criminal, he would not have handed, we would not have handed him over to you. You know, that didn't answer the question. That was sort of a euphemism or a way of getting around it. At this Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews answered him, we do not have the right to execute anyone in order that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, that he said, indicating the kind of death that he would die. Now, they are admitting that they have no right to kill anyone. And yet, Herod himself killed John the Baptist, didn't they? And they uh, wanted to stone the woman caught in adultery. Of course, that wasn't execution. That was just stoning. And if she died, well, you know, that was unfortunate. So Pilate went back into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, this is important because in the end, we see that he truly is the king of the Jews. Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own, or have others told you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom did belong to this world, my attendants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not here. So Pilate said to them, to him, then you are a king. And Jesus said, you say that I am. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? It's sort of been uh, a famous phrase, you might say, that has been used over and over uh, in many different places. Okay, But Jesus, of course, is perfect love, perfect justice, and perfect truth in himself. So what Pilate is doing, unknowingly, of course, is actually condemning truth. When he said this, what is truth, he again went out to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in this man, but you have a custom uh, that I release one prisoner to you at Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Not this one, but Barabbas. 
Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary. It's interesting that uh, historians, theologians, and others have gone back into Jewish records, and there is no record of this custom, and there's no record of anybody by the name of Barabbas. So, this is kind of a little bit of a question about what is meant by this arrangement here. Then Peter, uh, rather, Pilate took Jesus and had him scourged. And the soldiers wove a crown out of thorns and placed it on his head and clothed him in a purple cloak. And they came to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him repeatedly. Once more, Pilate went out and said to them, you know, this in and out, in and out thing here, Look, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple cloak. And he said, he said, meaning Pilate said to them, Behold the man, ecce homo. When the chief priests and the guards saw him and cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. So the Jewish people, are, or the Jewish authorities, are beginning to feel that they're losing the battle here. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God, which of course he was. Now, when Pilate heard this statement, he became even more afraid and went back into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus did not answer him. So Pilate said to him, Do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you, and I have power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me if it had not been given to you from above. For this reason, the one who handed him over to you has the greater sin. And presumably that is the Jewish authorities. Consequently, Pilate tried to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release him, you are not a friend of Caesar. So Pilate gets more afraid because of that statement. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, in and out, and seated him on the judge's bench in the place called the stone pavement, in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, he did this out of mockery, you might say, seated him in his own seat, you might say. It was preparation day for Passover, the day that is before Passover. Passover would have started the evening after sundown, on that day, excuse me, and it was about noon, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And there he cried out, 
Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now that is about the most... The only word I can use is the most damning phrase that these people could have used. Because here he is, God, their king, king of the Jews, and they are denying it. You had back way back in the Old Testament, in the first book of Kings, actually even started before that, uh, when the Jewish people had no king, it was before the monarch, monarchy got started, and they clamored for a king. And you had uh, Samuel, the priest at the time, uh, told them that God himself was their king, and that they should look to him and to him only. And they clamored and they wanted a king. Right? And so Samuel prays to God and says, what do I do? God tells him, let them have a king. And of course, through that process, Saul, not not Saul of Tarsus or St. Paul, but the original Saul, was made the first king of the Jewish people. He started out as a pretty good man, but got too involved in the personal possessions of things and turned out to be uh, not very good. And so that's when David was then put in his place. <clears throat> David then began what was known as the golden age of Judaism. But the whole idea of the kingship, God warned the Jewish people through Samuel that there would be consequences for them to have an earthly king. And now, of course, in this scene, we see some of those consequences coming to bear. When they have, we have no king but Caesar. So they're putting Caesar above God himself. Yes, June? Well, yes, but I would say it was the lowest way, really. Yes. Yes, it was the most difficult uh, uh, and gruesome uh, of all executions. Yes. Yes. To please the Jewish people. You see, he was there at by the authority of Caesar, or, you know, the Roman authorities. But he was a weak person, and he was afraid that, and this was goes back to the crux of most of their fears, that if too many people went over to Jesus, 
and started following Jesus as Lord and Savior or Messiah, then they would ignore the high priest and they would ignore Pilate, who were the authorities at the time. And so those priests, the high priest and Pilate, were both concerned about their own jobs and their own position. The one on the cross. Yes. Yes. In fact, I will read in a few minutes uh, on that subject. Yeah. Yes, uh, what Howard is saying here is that in the Jewish Seder, even today, if you uh, if you get a copy of the Haggadah, which is the, the program, you might say, for an official uh, Jewish Seder, it is a banquet. It is a joyous banquet, not a solemn or sorrowful banquet. It is a joyous banquet. It includes uh, little tricks and uh, gimmicks, you might say, for children if they are present. There is a requirement uh, for certain songs, uh, certain prayers, and so forth to be said. There's a requirement for certain foods to be present. Other foods can be also present, but you must have uh, the um, herbs and spices and the matzah and and the uh, kosher wine. Um, that is used, and it used to be that for centuries they would use uh, lamb. Nowadays, nowadays, of course, everything you know changes. Nowadays, it's mostly turkey. Okay, uh, but a Jewish seder is a very interesting uh, ceremony, and if anyone of you have an opportunity to attend one, I recommend that you do, because you will see in it a lot of the prayers that we say at Mass. In fact, the actual last words of the official part of the Jewish Seder is, it is finished. And that is the same words or meaning that we used to say here at the end of the Mass, Ite Messias, it is now finished. So there is a lot of symbolisms that we have carried over into our Mass because it was the Passover Seder that Jewish that Jesus was celebrating in the last night of his life. And it was the one where the Eucharist was instituted and given to us and we were told to uh, do this in memory of him. We said, Uh, yes and no. It, it, it is the same words, yes. But most people interpret that. What, Jesus, what Louisa just said is, on the cross, uh, the seven last words, which are often used as part of the Good Friday ceremony, um, and there's uh, a little bit of homily after each of the seven words. One of them is, it is finished. Most scholars now interpret that to mean that Jesus' mission is now finished with his death on the cross. That was why he came to earth in the first place, among other things, uh, but that was the most important thing. 
says, after, after saying, we have no king but Caesar, then he, meaning Pilate, handed him, meaning Jesus, over to them, meaning the Jews, to be crucified. See how the personal pronouns really can get you confused? In one sentence, we have he, him, and them. And you have to kind of figure out who is who. This one is not too difficult, but sometimes it can be a little confusing. All right, so move on. So they took Jesus and carrying the cross himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Now, many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Now, this is not unusual. Quite often in crucifixions, particularly if they were notable people, uh, the accusation or the uh, crime that they had committed would be plastered on some something uh, nearby. Okay. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, and this is his famous, and I love to hear John Wayne saying this, <laughs> what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four shares, a share for each soldier. They also took his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top down. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see those um, to see to those who it will be, in order that the passage of Scripture might be fulfilled. Okay. Now, that's what I want to read here. This is Psalm 22. And you'll be familiar with the first part. I'm only going to read the first part because... Between now and next week, I'd like you to read the second part, all right? You'll all remember these first words. This is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why so far from my call for help? From my cries of anguish. My God, I call by day, but you do not answer. By night I have no relief, and yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the glory of Israel, and you our ancestors trusted. Now we're talking about, uh, or this is a psalm from the Old Testament, so they're talking about God the Father, okay? 
In you our ancestors trusted. They trusted and you rescued them. To you they cried out and they escaped. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm, hardly human, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They curl their lips and jeer. They shake their heads at me. Says you relied on the Lord. Let him deliver you. If he loves you, let him rescue you. Yet you drew me forth from the womb. And made me safe at my mother's breast. Upon you I was thrust from the womb. Since the birth, since birth, you are my God. Do not stray, I'm sorry, do not stay far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help me. Many bulls surround me, and fierce bulls of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions that red and rend and roar. Like water, my life drains away. All my bones grow soft. My heart has become like wax. It melts away with me, within me. As dry as a potshed is my throat. My tongue sticks to my palate. Remember, he says, I thirst. You lay me in the dust of death. Many dogs surround me. A pack of evildoers closes in on me. So wasted are my hands and feet that I can count all my bones. They stare at me and gloat. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, which we just read. But Lord, do not stray, stay far away. My, my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, for forlorn life from the teeth of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth my poor life from the horns of the bull. Then I will proclaim your name to the assembly, etc. That's the second part I'd like you to read over um, this week because it, the second part is actually a victory song, okay, which is actually in tune with the resurrection of Christ because even though this poor guy in this psalm Psalm 22. Yes. Now, which Bible do you have, though? Because if... Yeah, okay. Psalm 22. All right. The wording might be a little different in each of yours. In fact, the older Bible that I have actually has a little bit better description than, than this one that I just read. This is the latest version of the New American Bible, the study version. And frankly, I don't care for the translation as well as I do the old one. But that's the way it goes. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four shares. A share for each soldier. I already read this, but we'll go over it again. They also took his tunic. Now, what's the difference between his clothes and his tunic? The tunic is an undergarment. All right. Generally, it goes to about the knees. 
Um, and the cloak would be the outer garment. Uh, uh, depending on the weather, um, the cloak might be used or not. Uh, either way would be acceptable in most places. <clears throat> they divided my garments among them, and for my vesture they cast lots. So this is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, be careful. You can't take uh, the words his mother's sister Mary uh, in the way we would interpret that today. Sister, in this case, could have been a close relative or a close friend. It would be unlikely that there would be two Marys in the same family. You know, sisters both named Mary. Although I have to admit, in my father's family, my father's name was Elmer Clarence, and his brother's name was Clarence Elmer. <laughs> but then my grandmother had ten children, so she probably ran out of names. You know. I there were four women there. Mary and her sister. Yes. And then another Mary and another Mary. No, 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 no. Well, uh, yeah, Mary and her sister, and Mary Magdalene, and then there was another person that isn't named. Yeah, her sister. Yeah. Okay. All right. But John was the fourth person. Not there's three women and and one man. No. Mary and her sister. Mary. The wife of uh, Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Mary, Mary's sister, Mary Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. Well, no, Mary and Mary, the wife of Clopas, are two people, and Mary Magdalene is the third person. Yeah. Mary, his mother. His mother, his mother and sister, Mary and Clopas? No, no. The, the sister is the wife of Clopas. All right. He finally got it. Takes a little longer for some people. Yeah. Okay. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Now, this is where the church also believes that because of this giving of the responsibility to John the Apostle, that Mary was taken into his home and he represented all of mankind. And so Mary was actually given to all mankind as a mother, representative of God. Okay. 
and to the church. So she is the mother of the church and our spiritual mother as well. Okay. Uh, a very nice, very nice, I think, uh, honor in a way and something that we should all think about and look to as far as uh, someone who can intercede for us. That's the purpose. After this, aware that everything was now finished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. There was a vessel filled with common wine. So they put a sponge soaked in wine on a sprig of hyssop and put it up to his mouth. Now, a spring of hyssop wouldn't actually hold uh, wine. Uh, so hyssop is a very um, flexible or flimsy uh, weed, you might say, and therefore it had to be something more uh, substantial than hyssop to go up uh, carrying not only a sponge, but a sponge filled with wine. But it's a, this is a minor thing. But uh, just so to let you know that I haven't forgotten the I caught that. Okay. So they put his sponge soaked in wine on a sprig of hyssop and put it up to his mouth. When Jesus had taken the wine, he said, it is finished. Meaning that his mission, his purpose for coming to earth in the first place has now been completed. And bowing his head, he handed over the spirit. Now, since it was preparation day, again, the day before Passover, Passover would have started that evening, okay, in order that the bodies might not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath day, For the Sabbath day of that week was a solemn one. Remember, uh, Passover does not always follow on a Saturday. Okay. Many people are, are a Friday. People often think about that, but it's not. Passover is always on the first full moon after the spring equinox, regardless of what day of the week that is. Okay. Quite often, it will coincide with our Good Friday, but not always, and that would just be coincidental. Passover is always reconciled as being on the eve of the first full moon of the spring equinox, after the spring equinox, which would be after the 21st of March. Shouldn't that allow us to nail the year down really tight? No. Because there's still a question of days in there. Because you got to have the, the first full moon after the vernal equinox on a Saturday. I mean, that's, that's tight. No. It's not going to be seven years apart. Yeah, well, that's, see, that's what's happening. Yeah, the Gregorian calendar is up to seven years off. 
on specific events. Now, since it was preparation day, in order that the bodies might not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath that week was a solemn one, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs be broken and may be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then of the other one who was crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one soldier thrust his lance into his side, and immediately blood and water flowed out. An eyewitness has testified, and his testimony is true. Again, this eyewitness is probably John himself. He knows that he is speaking the truth so that you also may come to believe. For this happens so that the scripture passage might be fulfilled. Not a bone of it will be broken. That's Psalm 34. And again, another passage says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. I believe that's from the prophet Zechariah. So, Jesus now has died. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, secretly a disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews, asked, see he was a a member of the Sanhedrin, as Nicodemus is also, and you can see that some of uh, the Sanhedrin didn't agree with all of them, so you can't sort of blame all of them, um, you know, in one fell swoop. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, secretly a disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate if he could remove the body of Jesus. And Pilate permitted it. So he came and took his body. Nicodemus, the one who had first come to Jesus at night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 100 pounds. They took the body of Jesus, bound it with burial cloths, along with the spices, according to the Jewish burial custom. And now in the place where he had been crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been buried. And so they laid Jesus there, because the Jewish preparation day, uh, because of the Jewish preparation day, for the tomb was close by. I'm going to leave the rest of this, chapters 20 and 21, for next week. They are short, um, but important. But I think it's wise that we talk a little bit about the whole idea of Jesus, his life and his death, and what this all meant, not only to us personally, but to all mankind. As we've said before, no other person on earth, no other event or life, has affected more people down through history 
and continues to affect more people down through history than Jesus Christ. And the event of his life, death, and resurrection. And therefore, I think it behooves us to think about what does that mean to us personally? And what is our relationship with Christ? He took our sins upon his own back to the cross. Things that we couldn't have done. Not only because we were not capable, we were not present, but they wouldn't have had the same value to the Father as his only Son, a divine person assuming the guilt of all mankind. Why is it? Why was it so necessary to treat him so bad? Well, that's a good point. A lot of people have asked me that. Why did he have to go through such a horrible form of death? First of all, is and this is what we've said just a little while ago, that this was probably the lowest form of death for the most severe criminal. But it was a way of God saying, this is how far to the depths that I will go to save mankind. It is a measure, you might say, of his abundant love and the depths that he will go to bring us back. Remember the Jewish people had gotten so far off of the track of God's plan of salvation. And as we've said before in Psalm 81, he says, I left them in their own designs because after all of the work that I did through the prophets and all of the other important people of the Old Testament, they still reject my son. Therefore, I am leaving them to do what they want. But they will not be able to enjoy heaven with me unless they come back through Christ. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Yes. 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 Jesus, you know, like you might say back in the first chapter, first and second chapter, where John the Baptist points him out as the Lamb of God. There is the Lamb of God. Uh, that is to indicate that his destiny was to be the last acceptable, not the last one actually, but the last acceptable one, uh, the last lamb to be slaughtered on Passover and offered back to the Father. Uh, in the same way that the lambs were intended prior to that. And of course, God gave the Jewish people, the Jewish authorities, I should say, uh, the 40 years to try to get them to change their mind based on all of the writings of Paul and the other apostles or the other evangelists. Uh, and yet they still rejected him. So therefore, the destruction of the temple 
uh, and Jerusalem was an indication of his withdrawal of the first covenant. Now, someone asked me a little while ago, uh, I thought you said that God would not intervene. And I'm saying he didn't intervene. He permitted the destruction of the temple because it indicated his withdrawal. Uh, just like other things, for example, when the people were carted off as slaves or conquest or prisoners, whatever, to Babylon back in the 6th century. They didn't understand. And they were quite upset with God because he allowed this to happen. They didn't understand why he would have allowed that to happen. Why didn't he come to their rescue? And it was because he allowed it because of their own sins. And the fact that that was the only way to get their attention. And finally, in Babylon, they finally... Uh, discovered again, because it had been rejected before, the book of Deuteronomy with all the laws. And so that's where the synagogue system began, was in Babylon. It was a system of house studies, uh, house uh, places of study, you might say, and study of the Old Testament scriptures primarily the book of Deuteronomy, which is the book of the law. And what they did was they finally, through that, realized why they were in Babylon in the first place. And then they decided, after a while of really absorbing the laws, that this is what they would follow if and when they got back to Jerusalem. So, when they did get back to Jerusalem, they took these laws that were listed in the book of Deuteronomy and said that they were going to follow them come hell or high water. Well, they went to the opposite extremes to what they were before, but the end result is the same. They worshipped the laws and they didn't worship God. I'm sorry, read it. Well, wouldn't that be the same thing then with the Holocaust because of the uh, no, they've condemned themselves by rejecting God. Unless they come back through Christ. Yes, unfortunately. Um, and the door is always open for anyone and everyone. The door is always open for repentant sinners or anyone else to come back, but they must come back through Christ. This is the whole meaning of when we talked about the uh, Good Shepherd and the Sheep Gate. That was the whole purpose and the meaning of that particular chapter uh, where Christ is the Sheep Gate and we have to come in through him. Uh, but God does not condemn anybody. They condemn themselves. That's important to remember that. Because quite often, I've heard people say, well, God is so harsh, and he has this rules and that rules, and boy, he squashes you, and so forth, if you don't obey. No, no, no. You're reading it incorrectly. God does not 
condemn anyone. It's the individual who condemns him or herself by not accepting the teachings of Christ or the teachings of the church, which is an extension of Christ. Very important point. Um, because God is love. But love has two sides. Love has an other side that we don't hear too much about, and that is justice. God is perfect love, but he is also perfect justice. Love has certain requirements, certain laws that we have to follow. And if we don't, then it is not love. So that has to be kept in mind. Perfect justice goes along with it. In other words, certain responsibility, certain criteria has to be met as part of perfect love. And unfortunately, we don't hear enough of that. Yes, ma'am? Yeah. I don't accept the first part of your statement, but you're right. We, in our suffering, can offset a great deal of the guilt of others, depending on how we do that, of course. Uh, But that is part of what we should be thinking about. When we are suffering, people say, often think, Oh, woe is me, why have I got this problem, or why have I got this pain, or why have I got this disease, woe is me, and so forth and so on. What they should be thinking about is, Lord, what are you telling me through this particular problem, through this suffering, through this disease, or whatever it might be, and trying to get an understanding of what God's reasoning is behind that. And generally, if you're sincere and honest and persevere, he will tell you. And you will come out much better for it. Now, we have uh, approaching us the holy season of Holy Week and then Easter. How many of you, and I'm not asking you to raise hands or anything, but in your own mind, are you truly prepared to receive the risen Christ at Easter? You know, confession is extremely important. It is part of one of those things that we should all be thinking about, <clears throat> not just once a year at Christmas, uh, at Christmas, at Easter. <clears throat> Excuse me, my voice is really going. We should be thinking about that on a regular basis. Confession is extremely important to the spirituality of our souls. And therefore, I would recommend that all of you think about that on a regular basis. (coughs) Any other questions? Yes, sir. Cora says that I said, and, and of course I'll repeat it, that the Jews would not accept Christ because of pride. Jesus represented and talked about the, the Trinity, the Jewish people's primary uh, 
holy prayer, their holiest prayer, like our glory be to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have one called the Shema, which starts out, uh, O Lord, our God, you are one. Okay? And the idea of one is contrary to our idea of the Trinity. That's only one reason they rejected Christ. Okay. Many others was he did not represent somebody who would free them from the Romans. That was more important to them than the theological reasons. Yeah. Uh, because they expected the Messiah to come, you know, riding into town on a beautiful white horse with all shining armor and uh, get rid of the Romans. That was their primary interest. And Christ had no intentions of doing anything like that. Okay. Does that answer your question? Any others? All right. Next week is our last week, unfortunately. In addition to reviewing and going over chapters 20 and 21, I'd like to hear from you what you would be interested in discussing or studying in following sessions, which would not start until September. But it always requires planning and so forth, so I'd like to hear what you have to say. There will not be a decision made next week, but at least I'll get some ideas uh, and then I'll make the decision. But uh, I would like you to give it some thought because I would like to hear what you would like to talk about and discuss next session. Yeah, Apostle Mark. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, I don't as a rule teach that simply because it is such a short gospel and leaves out a lot of the details that the other gospels read or, or include. And therefore, it's not quite as informative. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's one point I wanted to make. I forgot about it, and thank you for reminding me. Just because John's gospel does not talk about all the gory details that are in the other Gospels regarding the passion and death of Christ. That doesn't mean that John is saying he's right and the others are wrong. It just means that that is all that he is interested in presenting to you. He's assuming, because this was written long after the others, that you already know those other details. Okay? And he's presenting it from a different point of view. So please don't think that just because John doesn't include certain details in his gospel uh, that either something was left out or the others are wrong. No, that's not the intention. All of the gospels are accurate to a certain degree, but each one presents it in the idea or the way that the writer wishes to present it. And in John's case, it was always that Jesus was always in control 
and allowed certain things to happen to fulfill his mission and his purpose of coming to earth in the first place. Good question. question was, why do we only hear from the Gospel of John uh, actually during the whole Easter season and most of Lent? And that is because the Synoptic Gospels are read primarily during ordinary time. Okay? Ordinary time. The church, the church, liturgical year is divided into four parts. You have Advent and Christmas. You have ordinary time. You have Lent and Easter. Uh, yeah, Lent and Easter. All right. Ordinary time is not one of those parts, but it is everything else after those four parts. Advent and Christmas, Lent and Easter. Those are the four time periods when most of the readings, not all, but most of the readings are from the Gospel of John. The others, the other three Gospels, take their turn once every three years. At, in ordinary time, you will have one of the other Gospels being predominant and in order. So each of the three years cycle, A, B, and C, will always, A, will present Matthew's Gospel primarily, but not exclusively. B, of course, is Mark, and C is Luke. All right. All right. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for helping us to better understand not only the suffering, the pain, the agony, the embarrassment that you went through in order to return us to the Father, but help us to understand that you came out a winner. You were the King of Kings, and you are still the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So help us then to take all of this seriously and over the next few weeks ponder it in our minds and hearts in order for us to come back closer to you. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.